you're tuned to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Taiwan's government offered its condolences to China today for the earthquake that killed at least 46 people in the southwestern province of Chengdu. The sign of goodwill comes after weeks of escalating tensions in the region. Here in the U.S., the Biden administration has just announced a little more than a billion dollars of new arms sales to Taiwan. It's been a little more than a month since Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi flew to Taiwan on a visit that drew a series of reactions from mainland China. The escalating tension involving Taiwan reaches uh, our islands in the headquarters of Indo-Pacific Command. David Stilwell is a retired Brigadier General in the Air Force. He then served as Assistant Secretary of, of State for East Asia and Pacific Affairs. He's fluent in Mandarin, and his education includes a master's degree in Asian studies and Chinese language from the University of Hawaii at Manoa. He sat down with HPR's Bill Dorman to talk about recent events concerning Taiwan and why he sees this as a situation that goes far beyond a confrontation between China and the United States. The situation in Ukraine has alerted people that, that we have a similar situation in Taiwan, where you've got a uh, authoritarian bully seeks to impose its will uh, on a sovereign country or, or, you know, effectively a sovereign country. And now people understand the importance of Taiwan. For a long time, people would question why are Americans interested in what used to be said as a pile of rocks, whether they're talking about the South China Sea or the Senkakus. I think Americans get it now, is that anywhere you allow this sort of authoritarian bullying activity, it violates the, uh, the basis, the system on which all of this has been established since World War II. How do you balance that show of resolve, I guess, versus a risk of escalation of the situation? One is you really truly have to understand both sides, um, capabilities, intent, um, and so on the, you know, since I've studied the China a lot, um, they are not an aggressive, outward, expansive. I mean, I take them at their word on that. Yes, they invaded Vietnam, and, and yes, uh, they've done a lot of those things, but they don't actively invade or take aggressive action because they don't trust their military. The government does not trust the, P- the PLA. Uh, how many times have we heard Xi Jinping tell the PLA, prepare for war, prepare for combat? Well, he's not saying, um, you know, load up the ammunition and put on your rucksack. He's saying stop dabbling in art, stop selling real estate, start, stop making yourself rich, and prepare for you know, the potential that you might have actually fight. Last time they had a real battle was in 1979 when they invaded Vietnam, and it didn't go very well. They achieved their strategic objective, which was to show drive a wedge between Vietnam and the Soviet Union, but they failed miserably in, in terms of any sort of military operation. And, and my sense is their technology is better, but their actual capability is not significantly improved, certainly not on par with the Western world, U.S., Japan, Korea, Europe, NATO, and all the rest. So he's not very confident in their ability to, to execute what he says. And like you, you know, like we say, crossing 100 miles of water to invade a, a place that doesn't want you there is a tough, tall order. It's not easy to do. PLA, People's Liberation Army, during recent activities following Nancy Pelosi's visit about a month ago now, um, what have they learned from that set of exercises, drills, missile launches? A lot of what we see, look, I, I am not demeaning or diminishing the strategic sense of Beijing. They, they do a lot of things right. Uh, one thing they do is test. They understand that d- democracies uh, have 
and advise and consent issues. They have to understand, you know, how powerful is the chief executive? Where does the Congress fit in? That slows our response a lot. We don't often react very quickly. And so what they do is they test us. They you know, launch weapons over the top of Taiwan, that's a first, and they land them in Japanese waters. And that was a test to see what Japan would do, it was also a test to see how much the U.S. and Taiwan re- would react. So they, they, they're, they're very good at that. Um, what'd they get out of this? What'd they learn? Well, they may have learned something about just what our response would be, but they lost a lot more in the process by demonstrating to the world they are uh, uh, not willing to, as they say, solve these things through dialogue. They are definitely all in on coercion and potential use of force. You mentioned about risks of policy and risks of choices. There's also, with the situation of Taiwan, the risk of accident, the risk of misunderstanding. And you've seen this both from the military side, from fighter pilot through brigadier general, to the diplomatic side, to the intel side. How do you work that into this calculation? I mean, this is a hard one, and um, you got to really give it to the the people at PACOM, Indo-PACOM, and the the forces that are deployed out there doing the Seventh Fleet, Fifth um, uh, Air Force, and the rest. You put uh, American fighters with forward firing ordnance, whose job it is to shoot down hostile people committing hostile acts, and you put a Chinese fighter whose mission is the same, and you put them in the same airspace, or you put a Japanese fighter and a Chinese fighter in the same airspace you're really uh, raising the potential for a, a really bad escalatory act. I mean, once blood is shed, it's really hard for, especially in the PRC, for Xi Jinping to manage the the uh, will of the people, which they do have will, and they are on their social media sites we need, saying we need to do this. So nationalism really starts to build. That's why I would imagine, I hope, that the folks in the, the halls of power in Zhongnanhai and Beijing are thinking hard about when they cross center lines, which equipment they send out there, what a reconnaissance aircraft's job is, right? Those reconnaissance aircraft in, in, our, in my world are very visibly unarmed. They are very visibly peaceful looking things that don't have, you know, not bristling with weapons and antennas, that's by design. And so when they're operating legally in international airspace, any interceptor comes up, says, this is not a bomber, they're not coming into our space to attack us. They're just out here operating uh, legally. Well, you change that and you put a fighter out there and, and everything changes. The decision calculus for rules of engagement changes. What's a hostile act versus hostile intent? And you have to train to this stuff and you have to train endless and you have to trust your people to use good judgment. And, and I don't see that happening in the PLA. I, I see people who are reading Global Times. They're getting hopped up on nationalist uh, fervor. Um, it's it just again. These are things that Beijing can control. They have controlled in the past. Uh, they don't seem to be controlling it as well as they have uh, previously. Is there a way out of this Taiwan situation that avoids conflict? Is is de-escalation possible? I think so. Um, that Pelosi visit is very instructive um, on how you don't do it. Uh, one, I completely support the fact that the Speaker of the House went to Taiwan. There is nothing wrong with that. But what was unfortunate was that we had, an, in public, a conversation between the administration and the Congress as to what congressional authorities are, which include uh, travel. They can do that. They have to ride on administration aircraft, by the way, though. Hmm. So that's the kind of the, the hook. But when that conversation exploded into the public space, that, that, that was the major problem with this. 
you now put not just Xi Jinping but the Chinese people into the equation. And again, he's got to manage the, the 1.4 billion people who do have access to international. They, they have VPNs, right? Uh, they try not to get caught doing it, but you can't control information. It is getting into China. And they hear now in public conversation that the U.S. is sending the Speaker of the House to Taiwan. And again, nationalism, which the, you know, the Beijing has actively fostered, that nationalism takes over, and it forces them to make decisions so as not to look weak. Um, Susan Shirk wrote a book called The, the Fragile Superpower. And fragility is an issue that most Americans don't understand, although we are increasingly understanding it in today's you know, political environment. But nonetheless, we're nowhere near where they are, where Xi Jinping's job is not guaranteed. Uh, he has to continue to appease the people who see there's democracies out there that are doing just great, and they have human rights, and they have all these things, and they ask themselves, why in the world am I putting up with this authoritarian system? It used to be they put up with it because they were getting rich. And if you just tolerate us, you and your next generation, well, that's not the deal anymore. And so the environment in mainland China is very fragile. And when stories of the Speaker of the House coming to very publicly to Taiwan get into the narrative inside Beijing, yeah, they censor it, but it's out there. It forces Beijing to take action. In short, when we do these things, we should just do them as we always have, quietly without a lot of fanfare. China knows it's happening. Beijing knows it's happening. But because we don't make it public, we don't force them to take action. Do you send an aircraft carrier through the Strait of Taiwan? It's been done. Uh, and what was ironic was in 96, they sent the USS Independence through. I mean, that's just magnificent. That's messaging. Uh, I'm not a Navy guy, and uh, I'm not in this administration. But we do continue to send you know, ships through Taiwan. Sure. Taiwan Strait is international waters. China said that multiple times in 2017. They confirmed that when they were going to send the Liaoning through the Taiwan Straits for the first time, and the international community stood up and said, what are you doing? Well, they said it's international waters. We can sail wherever we want. That is the fact right there. They've confirmed that. The CCP has acknowledged Taiwan Strait. We need to get that message out constantly uh, in public space uh, so we can continue to fly, fly, and operate anywhere international law permits. And that includes Taiwan Strait. So, yes, it is. Uh, you can put whatever you want through there. It is a politically sensitive area, both for Taiwan and for the PRC. Sure. And so we should you know, use discretion, consult with Taiwan. We don't need to pre-notify Beijing. Hmm. And obviously, we need to work with Japan on this. Um, Japan's been a fantastic ally uh, as this has the situation since 2010, since the first Senkaku incident. Uh, and they continue to uh, be uh, very uh, a, forward-leaning in all of this. Even though they have a peace constitution and a self-defense force, uh, they realize that the threat is coming at them and they have to do something. Last thing on that, this is not a U.S.-China thing. This is a China world thing. This is a China-U.S. allies problem. So we got to stop talking in simple terms of the U.S. versus China. Clearly, Taiwan's involved. So any conversation has to include you know, Taiwan interests and capabilities, right? The military hardware they possess. When I was at uh, State, we made it a point that uh, arms sales would happen when arms sales were ready. And now it was a normal thing to provide uh, material of a defensive nature, according to the Taiwan Relations Act, to help Taiwan defend itself against an increasingly aggressive China. And that is part of the agreement we made with the PRC. Um, they have some great capabilities, but we, when we talk about this China-U.S. thing, we completely omit that from the conversation. So think about what Taiwan can bring, and definitely think about what Japan increasingly Korea uh, and NATO, Europe, and others are also talking about uh, Australia for sure. 
that they would bring their capabilities to bear as well. It's not a China-U.S. problem. It's a China-everybody problem. That was retired Air Force General and former Assistant Secretary of State David Stilwell talking with HPR's Bill Dorman about Taiwan, China, the United States, and its allies. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. Coming up in the show, we'll be checking in on the Century Ride, one of the many athletic races that went on pandemic hiatus. We put on our biking helmets to test you on Hawaii's most famous event to incorporate cycling, the Ironman Triathlon. Although other triathlons were already being held elsewhere in the world, the Ironman was the first in Hawaii. It was the creation of several endurance athletes living on Oahu. After the 1977 running of the Oahu Perimeter Relay Road Race, a a friendly argument arose between members of two clubs, the Mid-Pacific Runners and the Waikiki Swim Club. At issue was which type of athlete was more fit, runners or swimmers. A number of U.S. Navy athletes on the scene had competed in, in triathlons in California and suggested a way to settle the matter. They came up with a triathlon that combined three existing contests, a well-known bike race, a swim race, and a run. And this was how Hawaii's first triathlon was created. And a note, yesterday's Waikiki Rough Water Swim was originally part of the Ironman when it was held back on Oahu back in 1978. So today's question, can you name the winner who finished all three courses on February 18th, 1978? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right wins a reusable HPR tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy. NareetHawaii.com. Recent headlines about flooded conditions across the country serve as a reminder for everyone to make sure that they are prepared to deal with what could happen when they least expect it. Mississippi has declared an emergency as floodwaters crippled its water system in Jackson, and their running water woes are far from over. Here in the islands, we are not out of hurricane season. 
runs until November. So officials at FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, are urging Hawaii families to take stock of their flood insurance status. More than 55,000 local families have signed up for the National Flood Program. We talked to FEMA's Frank Mansell, who is out of the Region 9 San Francisco Bay Area office. He tells us that the agency is currently in the process of updating flood zones for all counties. It's certainly amazing how reliant we are on infrastructure. And and as we say to homeowners, just an inch of water will cause $26,000 damage or more. If you look at a city municipality and the infrastructure, even minor flooding in, in the San Francisco area when they have king tides, Nobody thinks that it's only, you know, four or five inches of water, but everybody seems to forget that there are underground utilities that have covers on them that are open to water inundation. So it's not just water systems that are at risk. There's uh, communication systems at risk and electric systems that are underground at risk. Water is uh, one of the more damaging events in our in our work a day life. Well, I think as people's attention, you know, has been grabbed just because of this water situation in Mississippi, you know, we're not out of hurricane season yet. Uh, and so people just need to be aware that hey, if you don't have flood insurance, maybe it's a good idea to get to get coverage. Well, we, we've always contended that your largest investment is, is your mortgage. And even if there's a flooding event that does not reach the catastrophic proportion that would result in a presidential declaration, you can cover yourself with uh, much better with flood insurance. And uh, it's one of the best things that we in- invite people to do in addition to building a financial toolkit. And the financial toolkit a, will include all the documents you need to help you recover. But it can also include items, inventories of life insurance, inventories of property to help you settle with your insurance company faster. Anything that you might need, you're going to lose documents in a, in a flood more often than not. And the better prepared you are, the better you are in the position to recover faster. And, you know, we're not just talking about, um, you know, wave surge, you know, like we get with the, with the storm. But, you know, sometimes those rain bombs, the rain cells that we've been hearing more, more and more about, they can do some pretty serious damage when it comes, you know, up Mauka and you're, you're not expecting, you know, you're looking down, you know, toward the ocean and then boom, you know, you're hit, your basements flood, you know, or, or uh, you know, if you're in a low-lying area. So it may come from a different direction than, than you think. Right, and and I think back to to July when we saw the uh, ultimate wedding crasher that that hit the national news here. It was just uh, amazing to have a swell come and top over a two-story condominium or or make a wedding perfectly wet, and and they just seemed to come out of nowhere, and um, I'm not sure that uh, we're not going to see more of this type of activity. I know that there was a big push to to get people to take advantage of the uh, national a flood insurance program just because it, you know, could offer uh, cheaper rates. Do you have any idea just about our coverage here, you know, in Hawaii? I know that Hawaii is, is one of the most insured places in the states in the nation, and uh, for, for good reason. There is a new risk rating system. FEMA has looked at the way it calculates flood insurance and added many, many more factors that would give you a much more accurate read of what your risk is. 
and that includes uh, assessments of the cost to rebuild in, in a particular area or zip code, the distance that you are from a flooding source, be it the ocean, be it a riverine, and it could include factors uh, such as that. Now, if you look at our current maps, which we will continue to use, but we are going to be using it to determine the rates using these other factors that are going to be much more fine-tuned. But if you were next to a river and that river flooded, you paid a certain rate. It was a high-risk policy. So your premium was the same as somebody that may have been a half a mile away from that river and on higher ground, but they just happened to be mapped into that same high-risk zone. So it doesn't seem equitable that you charge the person a half mile away the same premium that you charge somebody that's right next to the flooding source. So there's an example of how we might... Uh, we've been doing this since October 22. So coming up on a year now, we have been assigning this risk using this methodology. So it's more fair. So what can you share with our listeners? I mean, so where can we find these maps, you know, and information about uh, the National Flood Insurance Program? Well, the Flood Insurance Program has a a website called uh, floodsmart.gov, and it has to be .gov, otherwise you'll end up on a a commercial site. But floodsmart.gov, you can type in your address, and they will assess you very quickly as to whether you're high risk or low risk. And from there, it will recommend that you contact either your current homeowner's policy. Well, floods are not covered by your homeowner's policy, just as earthquakes are not covered. So the, the options are if you have a mortgage, you will be required to carry flood insurance. You can use either the National Flood Insurance Program that's offered by the federal government or, or through FEMA, and you would buy that through your your regular policy coverage. So you would contact your insurance agent and say, I want to buy a flood insurance policy. And inevitably, he will either offer the national flood insurance policy, or if you say you want to go with a private insurer, you can do that as well. You compare rates. Sometimes the private policy is cheaper, but the private policy does offer the risk that should you have an event, or should you have a claim, the insurance company, the private insurance company, could in fact just say, I'm not going to sell insurance to you anymore. Or in some instances where it's very severe, it, there are cases in Florida where the insurance company just pulled out of that state and said, we're not selling insurance here anymore because it didn't pay. But the primary benefit on both counts is, is that you will get reimbursed more in line with what your damages actually are. Certainly, like I say, you can look short-term and say, well, this is a cheaper premium, but if you go for that policy and, and something happens and you, all of a sudden you're not covered, you can still come back to the National Flood Insurance Program, but any grandfathering or any benefits of a premium uh, carryover, those will all disappear and you will come in at the, the going rate at the time. The insurance strategy, the way we evaluate risk, was implemented October 1st, 2022. And that basically indicates that if you had a new policy or you were doing a policy, uh, you'll find that your rates may go up, it may go down. We have done a zip code by zip code comparison. And generally, uh, about 10% will go down. 5 or 10% will go up. 
significantly, and a majority will stay at an increase of $5 or $10 a month. Again, that's the under the new rating system, and that that's available publicly uh, to assess what those rates are, zip code by zip code. And that was FEMA's Frank Mansell talking to us about the National Flood Program. Annual rates vary across the state from 900 to close to 1,500. Look for links uh, for the info on our uh, conversation page of our website later today. Civil Beat has an interesting story about the changing face of Lanai and why you won't see a bond dance marking the season this year. Reporting, uh, reporter Brittany Light joins us today. Good morning, Brittany. Good morning. Yeah, so your story is kind of a sad one. The, the numbers are dwindling at the Hongwanji Mission. Yes, I, you know, I traveled over there to attend uh, a service and learn a bit about what's happening as there are so many demographic shifts happening and and really what's happening is that the longtime members of Lanai's Hongwonji are are dying and the younger generation uh, really isn't stepping up to this to take their place and this is the traditional bond uh, dance season when uh, you know lots of uh, places across the state uh, will be uh, you know kind of reviving that tradition but not so on Lanai Correct. And, you know, the bomb dance, as you know, is, is you know, it's more than a, it is a Japanese Buddhist uh, ritual and celebration, but it's also been embraced by people of all cultures here in Hawaii. So, um, but the thing is, it takes a lot of uh, people to put on such an event. And Lanai's Hongwanji is, is really short on people. Right yes, I, I had uh, talked to someone uh, at a, a mission in Nuuanu, and, and they were saying that they were actually glad for the pause during the pandemic because it is just so much work for their aging members. And uh, uh, so they, they needed to rest. They needed a break. But, you know, I'm sure it remains to be seen whether a lot of these uh, festivals will uh, will resume this season. Yes, and, and, you know, some rural temples, the broader community has sort of stepped in to help put on these events because they are so meaningful for, you know, not only members of the temple, but people in the community. Uh, so that's a really lovely thing that so far that that hasn't happened on Lanai. And so you've got a tiny island and the numbers are dwindling at this uh, Buddhist uh, a temple. And so, yeah, what are they doing to survive? How do they keep it going? Yeah, and and so the idea is to sort of broaden, um, you know, appeal to more people by having different activities happening in the temple when service is not occurring. So in the case of Lanai, there is this movement to, you know, open up the temple to non-members for all sorts of activities. Um, you know, rent out the space for martial arts or for yoga, for meditation, for, you know, whatever the community needs and to sort of uh, restore the temple's role, at, uh, you know, at the center of the community, even if, you know, it's not only members using it, but folks who, you know, aren't Buddhist. And so, gosh, I mean, how's that working? 
Well, uh, I, 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 you know, it, I think it is working. There's a really um, a new uh, jujitsu class that's taking place at the Hongwanji, and it's uh, very popular. And there are police officers who are going with their kids, and you know, I think. So, so I think it is working well, but you know, it's not going to immediately translate to people joining the temple. Um, I think the hope is that by having more of these outside folks in the temple for these other activities, you know, maybe over time some of them will find their way to to the temple for spiritual reasons as well. Well, you know, and and the dwindling numbers aren't just limited to the you know the Buddhist uh, faith. You know, there are other religions that are, are uh, having problems, you know, attracting new members, um, you know, and, and really like a lot of these traditions, let's say with the bond dance, you know, the, the, those uh, were, uh, I guess, uh, kept, you know, as part of the plantation life. Yes, yes. And it is important to say this isn't um, particular to the Buddhist faith. Uh, organized religion is on the decline these days. Um, but the other layer that you're mentioning is, you know, that the Hongwanji has historically been a Japanese Buddhist temple. At one point, every member shared Japanese ancestry and, and generational ties to the temple, and that's not the case anymore. So there is this shift where, you know, um, congregations are, are diversifying, people of different ethnicities, people who are you know, finding their way to the temple for the first time and don't have a long line of family members who've, who've been participants. So it's, it's definitely a time of change. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see, um, you know, how, how uh, Lanai uh, survives, how the temple survives there on the island. But thank you so much, Brittany. You're welcome. We've been talking with Brittany Light with, uh, for today's Reality Check. You can read her story on Lanai at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. On view now, cross-pollination, flowers across the collection, explores the emotional, psychological, and spiritual resonance of flowers in art. HonoluluMuseum.org. I'm Marco Werman. On the world, we get an outside perspective. I was born in Yemen. So many people in Sweden. Most people in South Africa. Because getting outside yourself can be a good thing. Once you move to a different country, you zoom out and you're able to see where is the other person coming from. It is the world. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for HPR comes from SEEKS, the School for Examining Essential Questions of Sustainability, a public charter school in Honolulu for grades 6 to 8. Educating with a focus on community and stewardship, seeqs.org.
Japan is just now loosening its COVID-19 travel restrictions. So what does that mean for businesses who've been looking forward to seeing the Japanese tourists return to Hawaii? Well, HBR's Casey Harlow joins us to discuss the changes to the country's policies. Good morning. Morning, yes. Uh, so I guess starting uh, today, J- Japanese time, uh, <laughs> tomorrow for us, uh, there will be an increase in the country's daily cap of travelers entering its borders uh, from 20,000 people to 50,000 people. And that's, you know, um, foreign visitors and also returning, you know, residents of Japan. So there's an increase in there. Uh and also travelers can bypass the country's COVID testing requirements if they've received three uh, doses of a COVID vaccine. Also, here's something that kind of gets a little bit more tricky. Uh, travelers don't have to enter the country as a part of a group uh, for you know the last several, however many months. You know, you could go to Japan, but it was a group uh, kind of package that you had to go with so they could better track people. But individual travelers still won't be a, allowed into the country. And I spoke with HPR's Bill Dorman uh, with the Asia Minute. uh, And he said, you know, travelers from the U.S. will have to enter, you know, with a special visa to enter the country, you know, before uh, the pandemic. If you had a U.S. passport, you could just get that stamped and uh, get ready to go. But now you have to basically arrange your trip through some sort of travel agent, uh, get kind of like a special visa, special permission to enter the country. Now, what does that mean for Hawaii's tourism? Uh, that has been on the mind for a lot of tourism officials here uh, in the islands. A lot of um, people have been looking forward to the Japanese traveler returning, and we're seeing a little bit of that happening right now with the reopening of routes from with, you know, Japanese Airlines, JAL, and ANA coming back to the islands and going to Kona and Honolulu, but maybe not in the uh, numbers that we are traditionally used to seeing, and so. There's also a lot of other things, a lot of other factors that are kind of um, playing a role in this. You know, the U.S. dollar is the strongest that has ever been in, you know, roughly 20 years. And that could possibly prevent people from traveling to the islands. You know, the yen is uh, weak compared to the U.S. uh, conversion. And, you know, there's also fuel surcharges and inflation happening. And so for today's story, I spoke with uh, representatives at uh, Hawaiian Airlines, mainly Brent Overbeek, who's the chief revenue officer at Hawaiian Airlines. And he's like many uh, tourism industry professionals paying attention to how the current events will impact, you know, future guest bookings, especially within the next three months, you know, what is considered in the industry as a shoulder season, which means that we'll see less people coming to the islands compared to like the peak times in the winter and the summer. But we're seeing really strong guest bookings. But, you know, when factoring into those uh, external Uh, issues, you know, such as the inflation and the convergence rate, these are things that they pay attention to as well. We're always focused on the more macroeconomic factors impacting our business, you know, in terms of inflation. And thus far, we haven't seen any real impact from that impacting our demand. But we're also focused a bit on the strength of the U.S. dollar. You know, a lot of our foreign guests their purchasing power for Hawaii has diminished a bit over the last couple of years as the U.S. dollar has appreciated versus those currencies. So a great opportunity for Hawaii residents to travel abroad and have their U.S. dollar go a bit further. But for guests coming here, um, which is the majority of our international guests, a little bit more of a purchasing power challenge. 
Yeah, and you know the the testing for COVID. I mean, that's several hundred dollars for Japanese visitors, and so if you add that on to all the other fees. Yeah, exactly. But you know, with that three dose vaccine uh, kind of history, then you should be good to go. So don't have to worry about that. But you know, there's also optimism within the industry. I spoke with uh, John White, who's the marketing director of the Kaanapali Beach Hotel. Whereas, you know, Maui isn't a huge destination for uh, Japanese travelers, uh, mainly Honolulu and Kona are the big, you know, hubs for Japanese travelers. He is, um, you know, he came back from Australia and he's very optimistic about, you know, international travelers still coming to the islands. And this is what he had to say. Anecdotally, when I was in Australia last week, we, we specifically asked about costs of a vacation to Hawaii. And resoundingly, as we met with 400 travel agents uh, over the week, they said that people want to come to Hawaii and that the barrier wasn't necessarily price. It was getting here, the number of seats available, that kind of stuff. So that tells me that when the Japanese market is able to travel here a little bit easier with the government restrictions, that that pent up demand that they will come, even though the exchange rate and those fuel start charges are present on the onset. Uh, the, the bigger question is, what does it look like six months out, nine months out, et cetera? And so when you're kind of looking at this uh, shoulder season, White believes that this Maybe entering a new normal these days where the terminology shoulder season doesn't necessarily apply or it will look different. He uh, tells HPR, he told me that, you know, uh, his hotel's bookings are expecting an 85% occupancy rate, which is a little bit higher than what he saw prior to the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, I I just know just being out uh, on the beaches, right? I mean, you see honeymooners, you know, out there, you know, with the photographers on the beach and and, uh, only a couple. But, you know, you know, I think everybody's waiting to see what happens if they're going to come and plan their weddings and come to the islands. Exactly. And we still have a very strong demand from the U.S. market as well. All right. Well, thank you so much, Casey. Thanks. We have been talking to HPR reporter Casey Harlow. Uh, To check out his stories, go to hawaiipublicradio.org. Today's Backyard Quiz, we're looking at the history of Hawaii's well-known sporting event, the Ironman Triathlon. We told you the story of the race's origin and how three separate uh, races were combined to create Hawaii's first triathlon. Most triathlons then and now are much shorter than the Ironman, which consists of a 2.4-mile swim, a 112-mile bike ride, and a 26.2-mile road run. Definitely not for the faint of heart or body. So when plans were rolled out in 1977, U.S. Navy Commander John Collins, one of the event's organizers, said, whoever finishes first We'll call him the Iron Man, and the name was born. Now, those three distances may uh, seem somewhat random, and to some extent they are. That's because the first Iron Man followed the course lengths of the Honolulu Marathon, the Waikiki Rough Water Swim, and the Around Oahu Bike Race. As for the lifetime bragging rights of being the first Iron Man, that went to Gordon Heller, which was the answer to today's quiz. And congrats to Nellie from Waikiki. <laughs> she got it right, and we asked if she had participated in the Iron Man. She said, nope, 
nope, nope. <laughs> but thanks so much for getting that answer right. Uh, and if you have an idea for a backyard quiz, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from Costco Air Conditioning and Refrigeration, serving Hawaii since 1961, featuring Daikin Air Conditioning Systems. Listing of contractors who install Daikin products at CostcoHawaii.com. On the next Fresh Air, tennis great John McEnroe, known for his epic matches with Bjorn Borg, his outbursts at umpires, and his new careers as a TV tennis analyst, and as the narrator of the hit Netflix series, Never Have I Ever. McEnroe is the subject of a new Showtime documentary. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to create, maintain, and preserve open spaces for the Maui community. More at haleakalaranch.com. With Japan lifting its travel restrictions and caps on tourists and our COVID recovery allowing many large group activities to resume, the organizers of the international athletic competitions are hoping that things will be returning to the pre-pandemic normal. One of those competitions is this month, the Hawaii Bicycling League Century Ride. We talked to Executive Director Travis Council about what to expect this year. We're really excited to see the Honolulu Century Ride come back this year after after three years uh, with the pandemic kind of turning everything virtual or independent. And we weren't able to do these large, large events, which really are, are our big fundraisers as well. How many people, you know, do you hope to get out there on the road? Yeah, so we expect a little over a thousand this year, which is smaller than normal, but we're building back. So yeah, about a thousand, all local participants, just because we're not able to attract the international audience that we once were. There's a lot being talked about with Japan relaxing its restrictions September 7th. That's, I know, not a lot of lead time, but I was surprised to learn that JAL actually... Uh, Kokuas for uh, for the riders who want to come from Japan with their bikes. Yeah, so JAL's a big sponsor of ours, and and historically has has provided free bike transportation for participants from Japan. So we we still have over a hundred participants coming from Japan this year. I expect that number to go up with those restrictions relaxing. And next year being our 40th anniversary for the Century Ride, the Japan Airlines and the international market is certainly warming back up to it, and we hope to see a great return next year. You know, I know that uh, the transportation officials are, are kind of concerned because as everything comes back, people might have forgotten, you know, the road closures associated with a lot of these athletic events, road events. Yeah, yeah. We're definitely trying to get the word out there. I mean, we, we try to minimize the amount of roads we actually close. So there's some road closures around Kapiolani Park where the start and finish is, you know, really mostly in the morning. This is on Sunday, the 25th of September. And then throughout the course, again, it really goes from Kapiolani to Hawaii Kai, out to Kailua, and then ultimately up to Swansea Beach Park on the windward side, and then retraces its steps all the way back to Kapiolani Park. There's a few lane closures, so we'll just take a lane on, you know, Kalani Anioli, and uh, a few little uh, pockets here and there where we might adjust the traffic, but really no formal closures. All that we're asking is people, you know, be mindful, share the road with Aloha, give everybody extra space and maybe slow it down a little bit 
Gosh, what's different this year? The one cool thing we've added this year is, is an option where people can ride one direction. They can ride 50 miles out to Swansea Beach Park and then actually catch a Roberts Hawaii bus back to the start. So you get to experience kind of the whole coast, the whole uh, Windward Coast, the 50 miles, most of the, the sites uh, of the, the course, but then, you know, not have to ride all the way back. You can catch a bus on the way back. So we're excited to offer that and then really, you know, expand that in the future to be kind of a a destination type ride. You can get the family to come out to Swanee Beach Park and celebrate you doing the 50 mile and then and then come back to the park for the festivities afterwards. How's it been for um, cycling just, you know, in the past couple of years since, I mean, you know, obviously you haven't had the big events, but Beaky's, you know, been back out there again. Folks are I think, you know, got more conscious, right? Everybody was getting those uh, Peloton, the stationary bikes, getting fit during the pandemic. Yeah, I think the pandemic, one small, you know, positivity is that a lot of people turn to, to recreation. So they're out on bikes. They either got their bike out of their garage or they went down to a bike shop and, and grabbed a new bike. And, and just more people out biking, which which even if it's not you personally riding, you know somebody or you see more people riding. So there's just more awareness and which leads to more people riding, which leads to less traffic on the road, et cetera, et cetera. So I think we've really seen an increase uh, in people. And we saw that with our metric century in April, just a much stronger local participation in that because there's more people out riding now. Yeah. And that was a, a fun event. I got to participate and, and it was nice to see, you know, just some familiar faces out at the, the support crew, you know, at the stops, yep. uh, Iggy, Iggy Cyclery. That was fun to see those folks, you know, uh, out there, even though the shop is no longer. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're really, really happy to see the support, not only from previous shop owners, but we're, we're having more people adopt an aid station. So groups like the Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts or uh, on the Haleva metric, the outdoor circle, the North Shore, adopt one of our aid stations and really bring their whole group out, have their presence, you know, whether it's uh, to, to support their cause or, or just to give back to the community. We're seeing a lot of support uh, in a great way where we're getting different groups and different partners together. So how are you doing on volunteers? Do you still need more? Yeah, so we're really good on the aid stations, but we certainly have uh, some extra hands that, that we need for packet pickup and, and, you know, setting up signs and things like that. So check out our website hbl.org slash hcr and there's about a hundred extra spots we could use some hands for and then you know i know you mentioned the 40th and so so that'll be coming up but i mean what are the projects that uh the bicycling league has in mind you know as far as expanding the bike paths you yeah. know that kind of thing yeah so a big one right now is the leeward bikeway so that's currently under development, at least the first stages. So that's extending the Pearl Harbor bike path uh, out towards Kapolei. Um, so we're really supporting the state in doing that and hopefully continuing that. Um, there's a lot of projects around urban Honolulu, extending the King Street bike lane and expanding kind of that w network that we see. And really any paving projects. So Kaka'ako will be repaved, downtown will be repaved shortly. Any place that we can pair a repaving project with some improved bike infrastructure, whether that's you know, an on-street bike lane or a separated path or something like that. And then how's it been sharing the road? Because mm -hmm. we've got, you know, a lot of these e-bikes and we've got electric scooters, all these newfangled things. And, you know, I know that the, the state and city are, are working on the traffic code to make the appropriate fixes as far as regulation. Yeah, yeah. So um, all those kind of micro-mobility folks, whether it's scooters or, uh, you know, the unicycles and other things that you see out there. I think, you know, we as cyclists and, and people who have found our way to either have a bike lane or generally an, an alternative to the sidewalk 
are, are used to sharing this space. So um, a lot of those maybe unclassified or uncategorized folks end up sharing the road with us. And I think we welcome that. I think um, as you find any improvements for that class, whether it's cyclists or otherwise, really improve everybody. It makes it much more known where these individuals will be, uh, makes it more predictable, the actions, things like that. So I would really encourage the city and state to, to continue to develop that infrastructure and kind of welcome these emerging technologies into that fold. And then we are just coming off of a um, free week of uh, bus riding. Yeah. And I don't know how that's all worked for the cyclists who use the bus as well, you know, because they've got those new routes. They've got express areas. Yeah. Have you heard yeah. anything? No, I think, I think it's awesome. I actually used it last week to commute from the Windward side to, to uh, Wailai area, Kaimuki. I uh, put my bike on the front and, and used that kind of as the last mile connector. So I think we do see a lot of that. We were one of the first big cities to actually put the bike racks on the front of the bus. So I think that kind of multimodal um, method of getting people around is really a, a win-win situation. And there's no difference with the electric buses? Or no, they'll like still that. have those, as well as the rail will ultimately have bike racks inside as well. Anything else? I mean, just, you know, about planning to celebrate all things bike with the 40th coming up? Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, generally speaking, we invite everybody to get out there with us. You know, our, our big events, while they are 100 mile or 100 kilometers, you're totally allowed to ride less than that, 20 miles, 25 miles, whatever you're comfortable doing. So, um, and if you don't want to do something like that, we have plenty of smaller events or even classes where you can learn how to ride a bike. Um, so we have everything from cakey education to senior cycling and everything in between. Right. I mean, I, I know I took part in a, I think it was a moonlight ride, which was pretty kind of fun. Yeah. It was different. Yeah. Uh, and, and so you've got different groups like that yep. leading the charge. Yep. Yep. We even have, you know, social rides where we'll go and visit the, the newest establishment someplace in Kakako or something like that, all the way to fitness and longer distance, you know, focused rides. And uh, all of that lives right on our website, but it's great. Our, our membership and our community really has a full variety of, of focuses. And then as far as then just for the vision, let's say for the next 40 years. Yeah. What's yeah. Up? I mean, it's, it's as big as we want to reach. I think my goal as, as the executive director is really anybody that wants to ride a bike doesn't have a barrier to doing that. You know, that can mean infrastructure, that can mean cost of getting into it. Um, that can mean showers at your workplace. That can kind of mean a little bit of everything. So we have a very broad stroke when you look at our, our focuses from advocacy to education to events. So we'll continue to, you know, chip away at these small blocks. And it's not a, this is not a mission that's reached in, in one fall swoop. And, uh, and I think, you know, we'll continue to, to focus on, on kind of those small advances, um, which will ultimately make it better for, for every piece of it. And that was Travis Council, Executive Director of the Hawaii Bicycling League, talking about the upcoming Century Ride here on Oahu, which is being held Sunday, September 25th, after being put on pause because of the pandemic. The ride is the main fundraiser for the Hawaii Bicycling League. Uh, the ride marks its 40th anniversary next year. Look for links on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. That wraps it up for us today. Tomorrow, another mode of transportation. We plan to hear about how taxi drivers are faring with the high costs at the gas pump. Got some feedback for us? Are you seeing the gas prices go down in your neighborhood or not? 
Share your comments or questions about what you heard by calling our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also connect with us on Facebook. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. 